Welcome to Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. I'm your host, Justin Logan. Today, a discussion of Catholicism in U.S. foreign policy. Where and when does Catholic social thinking and Catholic philosophy more generally overlap with the practice of American foreign policy, and where in history have the two parted ways? We're joined by Michael C. Desch, the Packy J.D. Professor of International Relations at the University of Notre Dame, and the Brian and Janelle Brady Family Director of the Notre Dame International Security Center. We're also joined by my colleague at CSS, Jonathan Askinus, an Assistant Professor of Politics at the Catholic University of America. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Great to be with you. I wanted to start with a more general question, uh, a sort of IR theory question for Professor Dash. Um, we've been living in a world, depending on how one counts, that for centuries has been more or less populated by national states. But throughout the history of Catholicism, there have been city-states and empires and everything in between. So as we look at the world and, and, and think of it from sort of a, a Catholic perspective, um, are national states a sort of just a fact of life that we have to deal with? I mean, you've heard people propose that, you know, perhaps there should be a Catholic empire spanning the Western Hemisphere. So is this sort of state system just something that we have to live with, or is it normatively good? Should we appreciate it as something to be uh, maintained? Michael Desch? Wow, that's a huge question, Justin. Uh, do we have like eight hours for that? I mean, I think you could uh, uh, teach uh, uh, a year-long, not just a uh, semester-long uh, course on that. Uh, you know, I could, I'd could, i love to co-teach it uh, with uh, John. It would be quite interesting. Um, you know, I think my take on uh, the Catholic intellectual tradition on this issue uh you know, over, uh, you know, the past uh, uh, 2,000 years uh, has been uh, that it has been quite variegated um, and uh, uh, changed um, in, uh, in pretty radical ways. I think in general, um, at a, uh, a theological uh, or philosophical level, um, the... Um, Center of gravity in uh, Catholic uh, in the Catholic tradition has been intention uh, with the uh, with the state system, and, and I would say I'd sort of divide this up into a couple of periods. I mean the you know the immediate period uh, after the Lord's ascension um, and before the Christianization of the Roman Empire was. You know, there was uh, imminent uh, or an expectation of an imminent end of times. And so secular politics and certainly politics associated with the, uh, you know, the uh, de facto and de jure government uh, was just, you know, downgraded, uh, not completely absent, but uh, that just wasn't what uh, early Christians uh, were thinking about. Um, the first big breakpoint, in my view, comes uh, with the uh, uh, with the Emperor Constantine um, and the Christianization of the Roman Empire, and this opens up uh, the uh, doors uh, that you know uh, Saint Augustine uh, would walk through first about how you reconcile uh, being a 
believing Christian with the exigencies of, uh, you know, living in a world that's deeply flawed, but, you know, that we're going to be stuck in for uh, a long period uh, of time. Um, but I think, you know, the, the commitment uh, of the uh, church to politics was, you know, sort of uh, superimposed over the, the Roman Empire. And uh, the, the political actor um, in the, uh, you know, that period was, you know, a, a larger agglomeration, Christendom, that included a, a, a very variegated, uh, uh, you know, uh, number uh, of distinct political entities. But it was really the unity of the Christian world expressed through the papacy uh, that was most important. Now, I would say the next uh, breakpoint comes in 1648 with the uh, Treaty of Westphalia. Um, which, you know, also theologically coincided with the uh, Reformation, um, in which the modern state system, at least as we in IR understand it, uh, emerged. Um, and my view is, is the church uh, was only, uh, you know, very grudgingly and belatedly uh, willing to acknowledge this. The state system uh, was largely a Protestant undertaking, uh, which is not to say um, that, uh, you know, the Vatican um, and Catholics didn't make their peace with it eventually, um, but that peace uh, was, uh, was grudging. And in fact, I think up until the, the modern period, you know, you ask, what was the Catholic view uh, of the nation state? I think it, it was actually two diametrically uh, opposed responses. On the one hand, in the 19th and the 20th century, uh, you had a sort of Catholic realpolitik that acknowledged the reality that international politics was dominated by states. Um, and uh, so, you know, the Vatican was happy to establish um, diplomatic relations uh, with states and even negotiate, uh, you know, what in effect were treaties, um, you know, specifying uh, how the local Catholic Church in each of these countries would relate to the Vatican um, and the central government, the most important state in the 19th century in this regard and into the 20th century was, uh, was Germany. Um, and maybe we can talk about that. So on the one hand, you have this sort of Catholic realpolitik. On the other hand, though, you have um, the establishment after the Second World War uh, of the European project, you know, first the EEC and then the EU. Um, and many of the founding fathers uh, of that project were devout Catholics. And I think that they saw, you know, the vision uh, for a unified Europe, not only as, you know, pragmatic response uh, to avoiding World War III, to trying to resolve the German question, and also, you know, presenting um, a unified Europe vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Soviet Union and the uh, Warsaw Pact. But I think it goes beyond that, that they also saw this as, in a way, a recreation of some of the dynamics uh, of Christendom of, you know, Catholic states uh, coming together 
beyond uh, the nation state. Um, and so that's sort of a long-winded uh, response to a question that invited uh, a long-winded answer. Justin, to put this in theological terms, you created the near occasion for the sin uh, of windbaggery, uh, which uh, I am uh, very uh, uh, prone to. But uh, that's sort of my, you put the porter in the jukebox, and that's my song. It was the most eloquent reading of a syllabus I've ever heard before, Mike. I want to take this course now. Uh, I mean, certainly Otto von Habsburg saw the EU as, a, in some ways, a continuation of the family business. Yeah. Um, but I, I, it's interesting, Mike. That's a, I think it's a very international relations approach to the story. I think if you were approaching it from a slightly different perspective, and I would argue that if you look at Catholic social teaching and kind of the energy of Catholic criticism, you might tell a slightly different story. You're, you know, your, your colleague Dan Philpot might tell a slightly different story, right? Um, he tells it to me every day. He's, <laughs> he spent the past 12 years that we've been colleagues here at Notre Dame um, trying to uh, get me uh, in tune uh, with the real teaching of the Catholic Church. Um, and, of course, you know, the irony of that is uh, he's a convert and I'm a cradle Catholic. <laughs> um, but like in so many other things, uh, and certainly in the history of the church, uh, it's been the uh, dynamism uh, of the uh, converts to Catholicism who've often been, uh, you know, the uh, intellectual yeast uh, uh, of Catholic social so, thinking. So I, I think I think the slightly different story actually – it raises a really important question about what a Catholic realism might look like, which is something we also want to talk to you about. You know, the, the, the church's own internal governance doesn't shift that much after 1648. You know, and some have argued you, you see a kind of move of, of energy and power from the Spanish and, and Holy Roman Empire to the French system, but the French are still Catholics after 1648. Um, 1789 and the rise of strong nationalism, strong national states with uh, diametrically opposed interest to kind of a Catholic international project, and especially 1848 and the legacy of 1848 in remaking Europe in the rise of Germany, the Kulturkampf and the kind of the, the, um, the ascension of the state over the church in Europe. Um, the Catholic, Catholic you know, popes and theologians spent a lot more energy on fighting and combating this dimension of modernity and this dimension of the rise of the state than the 1648 state system. So, you know, when we talk about the nation state, those are, the nation and the state have slightly different histories. But realism draws a connection between them, uh, highlighting nationalism as kind of the most powerful source of, uh, of, of state longevity. So is, is, there, is, is, the, is the tension between realism and Catholicism not about the state – which, as you pointed out, the Catholic Church has, has always made played nice with states, uh, but is it actually about the nation? Um, I I think the nation um, is a uh, a big part of it. Um, you know, because the church's claim um, on believers is universal. Um, you know, in the sense we're part of the universal church, um, and. Uh, you know, and we're part of mankind, and so our, our moral bonds and obligations should transcend uh, national boundaries. Um, and yet, uh, states, uh, you know, uh, at least the 
modern European states uh, are national states, um, and nationalism is a, uh, a dividing uh, rather than a, uh, a unifying uh, sort of uh, ideology. Um, and I think you're right. You know, the, the, the church has made its peace with the reality uh, of nation states. But I think it's been a, a grudging piece. I'm tempted that, by the way, Dan Philpott is in this morning and two doors down uh, and to bring him down here to uh, adjudicate uh, uh, who is the, uh, the more faithful uh, Philpottian uh, on these uh, sorts of questions. Um, but, you know, I think so. You know, on the one hand, you, you in recognizing, um, you know, the reality of nation states, you know, uh, the church has been willing to sign concordats that would enshrine, uh, you know, some of these uh, differences, not only in terms of the state piece of it, but also uh, in terms of the, uh, the nation piece of it. But, but my reading, and maybe it's just, you know, my hobby horse and it's, it's not right, um, is that uh, that has not been, um, you know, the center uh, of modern Catholicism. I mean, I, I think, you know, after the Lateran Treaty, but well before that, um, the church was becoming less and less of a temporal power um, in terms of its, you know, control of territory, um, and more importantly, in terms of its control of the instruments of uh, statecraft. Uh, you know, I hate to cite that uh, great theologian, Joseph Stalin, about, uh, you know, how many divisions the Pope has, but he was eminently right. Certainly, in recent years, uh, the Pope has had no divisions. Uh, I don't know how many Swiss Guard there are, uh, but uh, uh, not a division's worth. Uh, that's certainly true. Battalion uh, the most. Yeah, <laughs> I bet a company would be, uh, uh, would be uh, sort of stretching it. Um, so, you know, at that point, um, you have the church taking a different or maybe – Returning to uh, you know its uh, uh, pre-Constantinian position uh, of, of, of taking um, a different uh, approach to uh, statecraft than it had before, and I think you know uh, maybe going back into the 19th century, but certainly with uh, the position that Benedict the Fifteenth took, for example, uh, on World War One. Uh, you know, for me, that's really the beginning in the 20th century uh, of the focus on peace um, as the key objective uh, of statecraft that would become later so important um, at Vatican II. Um, and, you know, we could talk. I'd be curious as to John's view about whether, you know, this in a way a return uh, to the pre-Constantinian position or whether, you know, this is, uh, you know, something new. Um, but it's different. Um, and, and that, for me, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, reestablishes the tension between uh, the church um, and the state system, you know, which I think uh, continues to this day. I mean, the church recognizes the state system, to be sure. Um, but it's not happy with it. Um, and if the Pope were the dictator of the world, 
uh, it would look very different. It'd probably look a lot more like the uh, vision of the European Union uh, of Adenauer and Schumann than uh, a system, you know, designed by that other great uh, Catholic philosopher, John Mearsheimer. <laughs> You're going to scare our Protestant listeners. A dog-eat-dog world. <laughs> well, I wanted to move a little bit back closer to home here in the United States. And, and Mike, you've written about uh, America's liberal illiberalism. And you wrote this, I think, 2006 or so, if memory 2008. Serves. 2008. Um, and this is a, you know, we've talked a little bit about nationalism as an ideology, um, but the United States is kind of a weird country, to paraphrase uh, the aforementioned John Mearsheimer. It's kind of a wild and crazy place. And our nationalism uh, draws on liberalism, which is generally thought of as being a sort of opposing ideological force. Yeah, Can that was what a- Sam Huntington called the American creed. And I think it was no accident, comrade that Sam regarded uh, or would talk about liberalism in creedal terms. So can you talk a little bit about how, and and you've had, you know, a decade plus to reflect on your argument in that paper. Can you talk a little bit about America's liberal illiberalism um, and how it's unfolded over the past decade? We've obviously seen a return to an explicit nationalism, an America first nationalism, if you will. Uh, But there are still these liberal underpinnings that haven't entirely fallen away. How do you think that uh, your argument then uh, treats the last decade or so? So if I could talk about it um, in two ways, Uh, talk about it um, in terms of my personal thinking as someone who self-identifies as a Catholic thinker, Uh, about um, international relations and then talk about it as uh, an American citizen. Um, I like to think that my ability to stand away from the American creed in a way uh, is reflective of my own Catholic background, which has its own um, somewhat ambiguous uh, relationship with, uh, with liberalism. Um, and, you know, maybe I'm seeing too much in it or, you know, maybe I'm a company man. So I got to say that, you know, the Catholic perspective uh, allowed me to see uh, a- aspects of our liberal tradition um, that uh, were, you know, maybe the dark side of uh, an otherwise uh, really good, in my view, uh, political philosophy. Now, it was uh, Louis Hartz um, and through Sam Huntington that I sort of came to uh, have this perspective uh, on American liberalism, and neither Hartz nor Huntington were Catholics. So maybe, you know, again, I'm uh, uh, glomming this on to uh, something that's that's largely irrelevant. But I I do think there are elements of the Catholic intellectual tradition that have been pounded into me from – day one, that gave me a uh, different uh, perspective uh, on our creed, um, and a perspective, I think, that is, uh, is salutary. Uh, I think a lot of the problem or the problems that I saw with uh, American foreign policy since the end of the Cold War really came down to uh, a sense of uh, hubris. 
that uh, had sort of taken hold. And it was epitomized uh, in Frank Fukuyama's famous end of history article um, and book. And I, you know, I think it's to, I don't blame Frank so much for us. He was for this. He was reporting uh, what he saw in the zeitgeist. And I think he was absolutely uh, right about that. Um, but I, I think that that hubris was inextricably tied uh, to uh, liberals, liberalism's both triumphalism, were the end of history, um, and also the dark side uh, of American liberalism, which is this inability to see the world through anything other than uh, the liberal uh, goggles. Um, and there I thought that my Catholic intellectual uh, background gave me an alternative um, that precisely in the way Hart said in the uh, liberal tradition in America, European liberalism was less uh, prone to this um, sort of irrational exuberance. Um, I thought, at least in my case, it gave me a, uh, a better perspective. So Now, you, you, I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. Well, I, I was going to um – it's going to follow up with the, one of the other things we wanted to ask you about. It's, it's interesting. Um, I think you're right about about the kind of perspective that your faith has given you. But uh, many other intellectuals, including those who, who brand themselves more ostensibly Catholic intellectuals than yourself, um, displayed that characteristic exuberance uh, in 2002-2003 in the lead-up to the Iraq War. And you have this kind of extraordinary moment where – uh, the Pope, Pope St. Uh, John Paul, and the bishops are united in opposition to uh, going to war in Iraq in the way that we did. Uh, but there's a tidal wave of, of opposition to that from the so-called Catholic intelligentsia in the United States, led by Michael Novak and George Weigel, who sort of castigate the naive and idealistic and utopian church – uh, and, and you know, posit themselves as taking the kind of the more real, uh, more realistic, more uh, uh, world weary, but nonetheless informed by Catholic teaching, informed by by just war theory approach um, to in, in supporting the war. So, w- what went wrong there? Um, they they may have been right in saying that the depth of a street strategic analysis. Uh, among the bishops and in the Holy See uh, was uh, not what it should have been. In other words, they were uh, the uh, Holy Father and the bishops um, were like the broken clock, right for the for the wrong reasons. Um, but I think that they were uh, also uh, deficient um, in their. Uh, uh, both their strategic analysis, and I think I would go further and say their uh, their uh, theological analysis. I mean, it was just uh, the the strategic case for Iraq um, was flimsy from the get go, um, and there there was uh, uh, just as an aside a really important piece in the New York Times Sunday Magazine a couple of weeks ago about Colin Powell. And, uh, you know, the sort of rush to war, um, which reinforced my view that uh, for a lot of people, I think for Powell and, you know, maybe even for George W. Bush, the road uh, to Baghdad was paved like the road to hell with good intentions um, that, uh, you know, they uh, saw 
Saddam Hussein's regime as an odious regime, I think accurately. But given that, they were prone to uh, see if he was oppressing his own people, if he was a dictator, um, if he was cozying up to uh, you know terrorists, then he also must be lying about his connections to Al Qaeda and his uh, you know nuclear weapons program, which by uh, March of 2003 we now know was uh, pretty much um, uh, non-existent. The second thing, and this is where I think the realist sensibility in the sense of uh, Christian realism that uh, I trace back uh, to uh, uh, St. Augustine, if not uh, before that, to the centurion Cornelius, um, would have been salutary because even if you admit the reality that this is a uh, an odious regime that the world, or at least the Iraqi people, would be better off without having. Can we really, uh, you know, fix uh, uh, fix it through uh, outside intervention? And more generally, um, can we create heaven on earth by fixing the earth in a way that uh, the heavenly city will be manifest here? Uh, rather than um, in the afterlife. So I think Catholic neocons uh, like Michael Novick and uh, George Weigel um, are not only on, uh, wrong on prudential grounds, uh, but I, and, and I'm not a, a, a good uh, uh, historian of the various heresies of the church, many of which I probably partake in myself. <laughs> I think you accused me of that, by the way, John, in your comments on that uh, my short piece on Christian realism, uh, but, <laughs> but I think, <laughs> but I think, I, I, I think that there is a uh, uh, you know a sense among these people again not ill intention but I think wrong headed that we can fix uh, all the uh, or many of the elements of uh, this uh, flawed world uh, here rather than you know sort of find a way to navigate the flawed world towards the heavenly city, which is in the afterlife, not uh, not here on Earth. Graham Greene had our number 70 years ago that Pelagianism was sort of the characteristic American heresy. Yeah, that's right. I'm one among many. I yeah, guess. That's right. <laughs> so while we're still in the Middle East, unfortunately, uh, in a lot of ways, metaphorical and literal, um, I wanted to ask about something that's come up and and – Historically, it's been more of a more prominent uh, in the Protestant American imagination, um, but in people like Steve Bannon, the advisor uh, to President Trump, uh, who is a Catholic um, and calls himself very much a sort of Christian Zionist. There's there's been Israel has played a big role um, in American thinking about the Middle East. I think to put it. Um, modestly. But there's also been a, a theological aspect to that um, involving sort of end times eschatology, interpretation of the book of Revelation. And again, I think this has been more a Protestant phenomenon than a Catholic phenomenon. Um, but I wanted to sort of push you on that, Mike, and sort of see what you thought about um, people who attempt to ground uh, very secular foreign policies uh, in interpretation of the Bible, right? Is this something um, that's inherently a, a more or less a Protestant phenomenon, or should Catholics do it more than we do? Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Um, I think that's a great question and another uh, issue that I could uh, uh, prattle on about, uh, you know, ad nauseum. Um, I do just want to, you, you'd mentioned Steve Bannon, and I hope we'll come back to him uh, in uh, uh, a further discussion of the, uh, you know, the second part of the question you asked me earlier about, you know, the uh, renationalization of American politics, because he now. played a very important role in that through um, his work um, in the Trump campaign and then early in the Trump administration. Um, and he's also a uh, very engaged Roman Catholic. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so it's a it's a very interesting and important uh, topic. But let's let's talk about um, Israel and uh, uh, Catholicism. Um, and here I'm going to sound like a, a full-blown uh, company man defending Holy Mother Church on this, because I believe uh, that we are both uh, literally and figuratively um, on the side of the angels on the twin issues of anti-Semitism, theological anti-Semitism, and uh, on dealing uh, with the uh, festering sore of the uh, uh, Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, I think the position, <coughs> pardon me, that the church took belatedly in the uh, uh, most recent conciliar period, particularly in the 1965 um, encyclical Nostra Aetate, um, that clarified what should be um, the Catholic Christian view of our relationship uh, with Judaism uh, was pretty much uh, spot on. Um, and it rectified, uh, I think, in important ways, uh, you know, uh, wrong-headed views that manifest themselves not only theologically, but also in the uh, church's uh, treatment or at least, you know, lack of... Um, you know, uh, correct, fraternal correction for Catholics who did not always uh, treat uh, our Jewish brothers and sisters with the Christian charity that they were uh, were certainly owed. Um, now, I do have, um, you know, more complicated, but maybe uh, not fully theologically uh, well articulated views uh, about, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the you know, the, the status of Judaism in terms of uh, Christ's mission and the covenant uh, with God. And the uh, Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI, had what I thought was uh, a very uh, thoughtful uh, reflection on this, which I think, you know, in a way was moderate, which was say on the one hand, you know, we can't give up the fact that we think that uh, Christ is the most uh, recent, you know, revelation from God about what our relationship uh, with uh, God should be. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, we should recognize that the first covenant uh, was, uh, you know, with our elder brothers, as uh, Pope St. John II, I believe, or yes, Pope, Pope St. John Paul II um, uh, would, uh, would phrase it. Um, and so that's pretty complicated. And maybe, you know, John probably knows a lot more about this and, you know, could uh, we could unpack that uh, 
you know, maybe in subsequent uh, discussion. So we've got that. And I think Nostra Aetate, in my view, um, you know, put the church where it should be, uh, both historically and theologically. On the other hand, the church has always been, uh, in terms of dealing with the state of Israel, um, above the fray and uh, more even-handed, um, recognizing, you know, that it was uh, the representative of Christians living in the Holy Land, including a substantial, although diminishing, number uh, of uh, Christian Palestinians. Um, and uh, I thought that the, the church, uh, you know, recognized the, uh, the tensions on the one hand between Jew Jewish nationalism and the indisputable historical commitment uh, to some parts, at least, of the land of Israel. But on the other hand, uh, the recognition that there are other people living there who also have uh, a legitimate claim to, uh, to that territory. Um, and so I think that that put uh, the church and the Holy See in a better position um, than you know, many other political actors who chose one side or another. Now, America, um, which is, despite the, you know, the fact that uh, Catholics are still a third of the population, is predominantly a Protestant um, country. Um, and Protestantism, I think, um, has uh, a long history uh, of associating itself uh, with uh, a expansive, if not capacious, notion of Zionism or Jewish nationalism, um, and for the theological reasons um, has been uh, more, uh, it tended to, um, you know, uh, align itself more uh, with uh, Jewish control of all the territory of Eretz Israel, of the land of Israel. Um, and that's based, uh, I think, as you were alluding to um, in your uh, framing of this discussion, Justin, uh, by a certain view uh, of end times and, you know, how that's all going to come about, which I don't think the Catholic Church um, is quite as, uh, you know, uh, committed to. I think we read the book of Je or the book of Revelation as uh, metaphorical. Uh, in, in contradistinction to uh, many of our Protestant brothers who uh, read it as a, uh, a lit literal blueprint or travel guide to uh, how the world uh, is, is going to operate. Is that fair, John? Do you I think, think that's I think that's fair. Uh, you know, certainly there isn't a, uh, a you know a blueprint to the end times or as an elaborate uh, an end times eschatology and Catholicism. I, I wanted to say though, and use this to ask you a kind of esoteric question, Mike. Um, both Pope Benedict, uh, Pope Emeritus, and Pope Francis have praised a 1907 novel called Lord of the World. Which is an end times. It's a novel about the end of the world and the coming of Antichrist, and it ends with the last Catholic believers saying mass. Well, a, 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 a the Antichrist leads a, a bomber squadron to destroy them, triggering uh, the end of the, the Christ's return. Um, and, and of course, you know th this isn't uh, left. This isn't left behind. You know, this isn't supposed to be. This is this. This book is intended as a kind of metaphor. It's not a. It's not a literal prediction of of the Monsignor who wrote it. 
thinking about the end of the world. Um, but it raises an important question, which is sort of hanging over this discussion unacknowledged. Um, for, for our listeners, uh, international relations as part of political science, as part of any modern social science, one of the assumptions of social science is methodological atheism. So you're not going to get an article published in a top IR journal arguing that the reason the United States invaded Iraq was that God providentially willed it so, right? However, the Catholic Church as an actor, and, and I would argue a tremendous number of states and individuals as actors don't have this social scientific assumption, right? They believe in the supernatural. They believe in uh, divine order, including providential order, whether that's a, a Christian or Islamic or whatnot. Um, and, and so how do we as scholars, how, how are we to interpret um, their actions? And, you know, to make maybe raise a more provocative question, what happens if we actually allow ourselves to relax methodological atheism for our scholarship? Well, I think I would disagree um, just a little bit with your characterization, uh, although I think there's more than a, a grain of truth in it. Um, I think religion um, has come back in a big way as uh, the object of social science study. Um, now, uh, you know, it's sort of like uh, it's most often, and this is where I think you're right, you're spot on. It, it's treated as, uh, you know, like an animal in the zoo. Uh, mm -hmm. You study it, but, uh, you know, you're not going to become a monkey because you're human being. You're superior to that. Um, but, you know, again, you mentioned my, uh, my colleague Dan Philpot, but he's only one of uh, many uh, uh, social scientists who have built a very successful career, including publication in top journals um, and uh, leading university presses um, in treating uh, religion as uh, a, an important social science uh, variable um, and, uh, you know, analyzing that. I think, though, and this is where, um, you know, I, I can't dispute what I think is the sensibility behind your question, um, John, uh, the idea that uh, we should believe this or that um, this should normatively ground uh, our view uh, of how we act in the world, there, you know, we're dealing with uh, a modern social science uh, community that is uh, thoroughly um, secularized. Uh, so it's, you know, like Margaret, uh, Margaret Mead you know, going and wearing the grass skirt while she's uh, <laughs> studying people in Samoa. You know, you do it, but, you know, you're not of that uh, culture. Um, and so religious belief as a, uh, a, a thing that, we, that would provide normative guidance uh, for the world, that's where, um, you know, I think uh, there's a real gap uh, between the secular sci social science approach to religion and politics uh, and the reality that there are a lot of political actors who really believe, uh, you know, uh, in some religiously infused, uh, uh, you know, uh, political agenda. Uh, that really certainly is the case. And I think that that uh, is evident um, in uh, – you know, some concrete uh, cases, you know, where I think it limits our perspective because we ultimately don't take this seriously. 
<clears throat> let's do nuclear weapons. Excuse me. Um, John, you wanted to, to, to push on, and Mike has written about this, so we're not asking him to start from, uh, from nothing here, but uh, do the Catholic realism question, John. Well, sure. Um, well, so, Mike, I, I think what you've just said um, provides a nice, nice segue into the next question, which is, um, you know, I think uh, you, you've talked about and you started writing a little bit about what a Catholic realism will look like. And I, you know, as I mentioned to you in conversation, I think that there's a lot to recommend this. I think that arguably the Catholic Church's default position has been a kind of political realism. Uh, but there are a few sticky issues uh, between um, – contemporary international relations realism and the Catholic Church, and none stickier than the status of nuclear weapons. So for realists, um, nuclear weapons are, first and foremost, just a fact of life in the modern state system. Because they are so powerful in ensuring the state survival, no state would rationally give them up. But I think many realists, maybe yourself, would go further to say that they are a kind of positive good, that by limiting the possibility of war between major states, that they end up preventing uh, tremendously devastating wars. Um, now, to do that, you have to have nuclear deterrence. You have to threaten to completely obliterate those who would threaten you with nuclear weapons or use them against you. And the Catholic Church has all but said um, that even the threat of deterrence, even if um, it's not intended to be used, um, is uh, immoral. So tell me, why, tell me why the Pope's wrong on this one. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> who am I to <laughs> tell the Pope that he's wrong? Uh, although, you, you know, my uh, thinking on this, which I uh, laid out in an article in uh, Commonweal in, uh, I think it was the winter of 2018, um, came out of a meeting I was at at the Vatican in 2017, which was um, – you know, an opportunity to for the uh, current pontiff, Pope Francis, to, uh, you know, sort of summarize um, and endorse uh, a trend um, in Catholic thinking that's been um, evident, you know, for a long time, but, you know, really, um, you know, sort of crystallized uh, with his statement there, which endorsed um, the United Nations, which is another, by the way, example uh, of a uh, uh, an ordering of the world that uh, the church has always felt um, uh, comfortable with, um, you know, reputing re repudiating um, uh, nuclear deterrence. So, uh, my interlocutor from the uh, the uh, uh, liberal Catholic Inquisition is saying, uh, Professor Desch, defend your Catholicism based on your uh, endorsement of uh, nuclear deterrence. Um, and I feel like I have a strong, uh, pragmatic uh, defense of, the, uh, uh, of uh, nuclear deterrence from a Catholic realist perspective. Uh, you know, part of it is uh, the long peace. Uh, if peace uh, is the uh, objective uh uh, of the believing Catholic, uh, then, uh, you know, nuclear deterrence um, seems uh, like a, uh, a reasonable um, uh, tool of, uh, uh, of maintaining the peace. Um, and secondly, uh, I think that I can, um, 
you know, at least align myself uh, with the hierarchy of the church um, in endorsing uh, nuclear deterrence, if not nuclear use, as a legitimate in, uh, instrument uh, of keeping the peace. Uh, for example, the European bishops, uh, both the German bishops and the French bishops during the Cold War, uh, pointed out that deterrence, not nuclear use, but deterrence itself uh, was uh, licit. Okay. Now, I think the big problem theologically for my position, and my colleague Dan Philpott, you know, constantly tries uh, 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 to correct me on this, uh, although he's not succeeded, is the whole question of intentionality that's really central um, to, I think, not only him, but uh, more directly the work of John Finnis. Um, and other uh, Catholic critics uh, of um, uh, nuclear deterrence who say, look, you know, at the end of the day, aren't you intending to use nuclear weapons uh, if deterrence fails? Um, and I say no. I mean, uh, and then, you know, they'll, they'll come back and say, well, you know, is a bluff really a good deterrent? Um, and I say that's what <laughs> nuclear deterrence has been about. Uh, since the nuclear revolution. It's the manipulation of risk. Um, but I think, you know, I feel um, that that's a compelling argument. I've debated Finnis on this. I uh, can report uh, that, uh, you know, he wasn't persuaded before he debated me and he wasn't persuaded afterwards. Um, but, you know, I feel a little bit like Galileo uh, at the Vatican, you know, and still it, still it moves. Uh, that's uh, that's my position. But I, I think, you know, intellectual um, candor compels me to admit um, that this, like so many other um, issues of theology, uh, remains in flux. And I think the church, like the U.N., has taken uh, a stronger position with the end of the Cold War that's understandable given the circumstances of the world, um, but is not necessarily going to be true for all time. And I could see, uh, you know, the bishops of the Philippines, uh, of Vietnam, uh, maybe even uh, Korea and Japan in the context of, uh, you know, uh, a more intense U.S.-Chinese uh, rivalry uh, in this century uh, of all of a sudden finding, um, you know, uh, more... Uh, merit in nuclear deterrence as an alternative to a major war with China. So stay tuned, I guess, is my bottom line on this. I think that's from a, a great... From a Machiavellian perspective, you might you might seek to align the Holy See's interests a little bit more with your own. You know, if somebody were to give the Holy See a handful of nuclear weapons, maybe a nuclear submarine, maybe they'd change their tune on the value of deterrence. Yeah, well, that's the Stalin <laughs> theology, if, uh, you know... How many nukes does the Pope have? Yeah. <laughs> Goose egg, zilch. And maybe if he had some nuclear capability, um, he, uh, you know, the, the Holy See would feel uh, differently about it. Uh, I mean, I do think, um, you know, I, I see myself as fully in communion with the church uh, about the moral imperative of peace um, and uh you know, I, I advocate nuclear deterrence and any other use of military force 
grudgingly and as a uh, last resort to keep the peace or reestablish the peace. Uh, I don't think nuclear war uh, could reestablish peace, but I wouldn't go that that far. It would literally be the you know the peace of the uh, of the graveyard. Um, but it's just uh, where I differ is on the prudential grounds uh, of uh, whether. Um, you know, the piece of a kind that nuclear deterrence um, is uh, uh, establishes has any moral standing. And I think that it does. And again, this goes back to my reading of Augustine and the uh, distinction between the earthly city, which is going to be flawed forever and ever, and the heavenly city that's only going to come uh, with, uh, you know, uh, the second coming of the Lord. Did you, Mike, in your, in your argument, discussions at the Vatican with John Finnis, did you raise the question of how nuclear weapons are actually targeted? I think many civilians or, or lay people might not understand that the U.S., for example, does not target cities or civilian infrastructure um, as a matter of practice, right? So in, in theory, at least, our nuclear weapons are, are a counter-strike. So we our nuclear weapons are targeted at, at other nuclear weapons. Now, they would have the implication of causing widespread damage and destruction so that they are effective as a deterrent. Um, but f- from these certain, certain understandings of just war theory, how and who you target matters a lot. Has that yeah. been part of the discussion? Yeah, and uh, uh, my debate with Finnis was here. He was not at the uh, Vatican meeting mm-hmm. um, that we were at in November of 2017. Um my answer may, uh, from your perspective, put me uh, further in Hans Kung world in terms of heresy. Um, but I think you're right empirically um, that the United States um, has, uh, uh, you know, from the early 1960s, um, from flexible response, uh, increasingly uh, targeted uh, uh, counterforce. Um, and developed capabilities and plans uh, that if the balloon ever goes up, um, that you know we would conduct strikes um, uh, to try to limit damage rather than against population centers. And I do think that just war theory has been part uh, of uh, what's driven that. Uh, not, I don't think the only thing or even the biggest thing, but it's uh, the idea that. You know, uh, you want more options than just mass murder um, has been a moral part of the discussion. I also think that's wrong headed, though. I think that what counterforce does is create the illusion that you could fight uh, a nuclear war. And I don't uh, believe uh, that you can do that. And I don't think uh, if you're somebody who's committed to uh, deterrence that you want to open up. Uh, that uh, particular uh, Pandora's box. So uh, I'm not only a critic of the uh, Holy Father, but also the Joint Chiefs of Staff, because (laughs) American nuclear strategy um, has certainly moved in the direction uh, that you're talking about. But again, I think if deterrence is a theory of peace, uh, you don't want uh, any uh, illusions in anybody's minds that you can use nuclear weapons at all. Um, and I think counterforce, even 
you know, damage limiting uh, counterforce uh, strategies uh, open the door uh, for uh, nuclear war, which I don't think could ultimately remain limited, or that the distinction be- between counterforce and countervalue uh, would uh, really save a huge number of uh, human lives. We certainly know, for example, during the Cold War, that even a limited counterforce strike by the United States uh, against uh, exclusively uh, Soviet military targets uh, would have been almost indistinguishable from a countervalue strike against population centers, just given um, how the uh, Soviets uh, deployed their arsenal and especially the command and control and communications nodes, which would have been a critical uh, target set um, in a larger counterforce strike. So I just don't want to go there. That's my uh, my view. Uh, but again, that's as you point out, that's not been the view uh, of uh, uh, American nuclear strategy. Well, and also, as you said, linked to just war theory. And in some, I mean, from a certain perspective, if you if you were really trying to um, reconcile nuclear deterrence with Catholic, with just war theory, it's very value. It's it's almost better, right, that the counterforce and countervalue don't aren't are indistinguishable from a deterrence effect, right? Because they are, they are distinguishable from a from a targeting standpoint. You are in fact targeting counterforce, even if by the kind of principle of double effect. You're also uh, has a countervalue proposition to it. Yeah, that's that's sort of my my instinct. You know, last thing I just you know want to flag about this, just in terms of the importance of the uh, theological element of this. Um, this issue, at least in my intellectual life, really arose first time with the uh, American Catholic uh, bishops. Uh, pastoral letter on war and peace um, in the mid-1980s. And uh, what was interesting uh, in terms of the uh, response to that was uh, the response of the uh, then chief of naval operations, Admiral uh, James Watkins, um, who not only um, you know was directly involved in nuclear deterrence because the Navy uh, through its, um, uh, you know, fleet ballistic missile submarine force was, you know, one uh, leg of the uh, tripod of uh, the American deterrent force. But he was also a uh, devout Catholic. And uh, the bishop's letter, in much the same way that the Holy Father's statement for me, um, you know, it sort of cut right, um, you know, to the bone uh, personally, um, it raised for him fundamental uh, tensions between um, his personal faith as a Catholic, which uh, you know was very central to him, and his role as the uh, you know the senior naval officer charged with uh, you know uh, 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 basically command uh, of a big part of our uh, our nuclear arsenal. So, and, and I think that this was uh, th- this shouldn't be um, uh, underappreciated. Uh, Another just brief vignette, but um, Justin knows uh, my classmate uh, uh, Bob Pape. We were both um, uh, graduate students at uh, Chicago. He's back there teaching, um, 
at, but Bob's first job was at the uh, Air Force uh, War College at uh, Maxwell Air Force Base um, in Montgomery, Alabama. And I remember um, getting together with Bob in some context after his first year teaching Air Force officers uh, about bombing uh, strategy and targeting issues. And, and I asked Bob words to the effect of uh, what was, you know, the big surprise um, in, uh, in teaching these uh, men and women uh, that, you know, you hadn't realized as, you know, sort of a secular uh, national security uh, scholar. And he said, you know, the thing that really surprised me uh, was how important the ethical side uh, of what they did uh, was to them. And it wasn't just boilerplate. It was that a lot of these people um, were um, devout Christians of one sort or another. And so it was very important to them that they be able to reconcile what they were doing uh, as military professions professionals with their uh, Christian faith. And I think, you know, for me, that put the uh, Watkins uh, uh, heartburn about the American Catholic bishops statement um, in a broader context. And it's, you know, uh, been my experience in uh, dealing with uh, American military professionals that uh, they tend to be more religious than the general population, tend to be more Catholic, I think, than the general population. And so the moral issues do matter to them in a way that, to go back to uh, our discussion about, you know, the sort of secular view of religion, uh, you got to keep that uh, in, uh, in mind, in perspective that the actors that are doing these things, uh, theology does matter, and religiously grounded ethics and morality uh, do matter. Um, I, I think that's a appropriately tense and ambiguous note on which to end this discussion. Uh, I'd like to thank Michael Desch of Notre Dame and my colleague John Askinis of CSS for this discussion. Thank you both very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for... Uh, not only inviting me, but also uh, for inviting John so we could uh, engage some of these issues that uh, I look forward to uh, continuing a dialogue with him on. I would just, as a cautionary note, Dan Philpott's had 12 years to uh, uh, <laughs> administer fraternal uh, correction to my heterodox uh, Catholic realist views. And I think even he, the eternal optimist, uh, would say he's had only uh, limited success so far. I'm Justin Logan. Thank you for tuning in. You can find Encounters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on the CSS website, css.cua.edu. Thanks again, and we look forward to you tuning in next time. Thank you.